that the Stone Age shamans created this civilization as a collective thought form. They projected it through time, and it took, I don't know, 20,000, 30,000 years for the thought form to take shape. But it was an unconscious thought form of theirs, and that likewise, we are projecting thought forms into an unknown future. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by author Richard Grossinger to discuss his most recent publication, Dream Times and Thought Forms, and his previous book, Bottoming Out the Universe. We discuss a wide variety of topics, including consciousness, the nature of thought forms, reality is a shared participatory dream, UFOs, and his experience publishing authors on the cutting edge of spirituality. Also, please be sure to give this podcast a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. That really does help the podcast grow. Richard Grossinger is the curator of Sacred Planet Books, a member of the Inner Traditions Editorial Board, the founder and former publisher of North Atlantic Books, and a founding co-publisher of EO, a seminal interdisciplinary literary journal that ran from 1964 to 1993. He attended Amherst College and completed a PhD in ecological anthropology at the University of Michigan. He has written more than 30 widely acclaimed books on alternative medicine, cosmology, embryology, and consciousness, including Dark Pool of Light, Reality and Consciousness, The Night Sky, Soul and Cosmos, and Bottoming Out the Universe. Dream Times and Thought Forms is his latest publication. Richard, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thanks. Okay, well, thank you for joining me. I am very much looking forward to speaking with you. As I mentioned before hitting the record button here, I've spent the past week reading your new book, Dream Times and Thought Forms, and followed it up with the book that preceded that, The Bottoming Out the Universe. And I'm still reflecting and ruminating on both of them. And honestly, I've been a little uncertain as to where to begin this conversation, just due to the scope of what you cover in these books. I mean, you're thinking and writing about all that is. And I suppose the place to start would be sort of the beginning in a way with cosmogenesis. And, you know, this is the creation of all that is. And if I were to summarize, and I want you to correct me here, but if I were to summarize what you're writing about, I'd say that you're trying to reconcile the fact that not only do we live in a physical universe, but a universe that is also non-physical, which is a conscious universe, or maybe I should say a universe with consciousness in it, but essentially that consciousness is a fundamental feature of all that is. That's true. I'm trying to think of a slightly different spin also to put on it, which is that we are also, each of us, and I, that could go as far as I know to plants and animals and other entities, we are each in transit in some autonomous way, in some individual autonomous way through states of being. Mm. And that those states of being get a signature or a spin put on them by the different things we emerge from which on one level includes the families, the, the kind of family constellations we come out of in another, at another level, our birth chart, however you would take that. And at another level, I suppose, the karma that we have, that is sort of ripened to bring us here. And that all, all of these things are part I guess they're part of the physical universe too. They're certainly part of the consciousness equation. And they, and 
I'm not, in the end, I don't think there's a distinction between the two, that one reality can arise without the other. But for the sake of, of arguments or clarity, I, I think it's, it's interesting and has always to me been essential to claim that bigger picture. And when I when you were saying the beginning, I was thinking, well, where is the beginning for me? The beginning is in the my earliest memories. I had these horrific childhood nightmares. I also read fairy tales and then as early as I could science fiction. And by the time I started writing, I was also in Freudian psychoanalysis for all of childhood. So had the quote, symbolic quest put right before me beginning at age eight. Hmm. And by the time I began writing in high school at age 16, as part of a creative writing class, I had, I had these mixed agendas. And it took many, many years for me to work my way through them, which partly meant working through literary traditions. At first, I was convinced that it was like William Faulkner and Herman Melville and Dostoevsky, and that I had to write fiction. And that's what I was still doing when I met Robert Kelly, the poet Robert Kelly, midway through college. And it was the same time my wife-to-be and I were started going out together. And we met him together, and he became our mentor and gave us reading lists and metaphysics cosmology, Sufism, avant-garde, arts. And when I began writing, I, I switched my writing. I set aside the, the attempts at, at novelizing and fiction and began to kind of imitate what he was doing. And I think I probably spent, I don't know, 10, 10 or more years in what was kind of like an apprenticeship imitation of the poets in the Black Mountain School that he was loosely affiliated with, and also our journal. Lindy and I did the journal together. We, we were kind of collecting work by those people. And I it's almost like training wheels. I really needed their language to give me permission to write about far out things. Hmm. And then, then there was a break when I stopped teaching college, I taught college for seven years in Maine and Vermont. When I stopped teaching college and we had two young kids then and we needed to earn a living. This was in the late 1970s, early 1980s. And I began to write books for publishers on kind of coherent packages of these topics. So the first one was on alternative medicine and called Planet Medicine. And the second one was The Night Sky, which I later rewrote with the subtitle Soul and Cosmos. And then I did two embryology books, then took a break for a bunch of years in the early two aughts, 2000s, when I did a series of books that were just general all over the board. But the titles are kind of descriptive. The first was called On the Integration of Nature, the second, The Bardo of Waking Life, and the third was called 2013, raising the earth to the next vibration. And when I went back to work, I focused on, I, I suddenly was obsessed by the topic of consciousness that I'd kind of missed it. I'd written toward it, around it, through it, but I hadn't really gone right at it, especially the deep dilemma of, of science that it has no explanation for consciousness, for what, what it is, what it, where it came from, and so forth. So Dark Pool of Life kind of epitomized that, and it also epitomized another big change when I went into psychic training. And, and that very much influenced my, my worldview. Before that, um, my main trainings had been either kind of psychological. I'd done a bunch of Jungian work as well as the earlier Freudian work, and I did bioenergetic stuff. I worked with Ian Grant, who later was at CIIS, where you were. He, he was with Don Johnson there. And, uh, but then when I switched to psychic stuff, I kind of left behind a, a somatics tradition, not completely, but, but 
I, I was in a different domain. And I, I did a year or so at the Berkeley Psychic Institute, which was transformative and also scared me out of there because it felt very much like a cult. Mm. And that part of it was, was disturbing more than anything, but ended up finally studying with one of the original students from there, a guy named John Friedlander. And I've been studying with him ever since, but have found other psychics, including here in Maine recently, a, a young woman who took over my psychic group named Brittany Atwater, who I joked for a while was the LeBron James of young psychics, or a down east of Madame Blavatsky. And I'm taken by the fact that there's so many young people in their 20s and 30s who take to the psychic work like a fish to water, whereas it took me much of my lifetime to even sort of peek in. But that's influenced the writing I've done a lot, especially starting with Dark Pool of Light. And it heavily influences these two books. But more and more, I'm trying to kind of fuse that with my own earlier visions, even going back to the, the, to the beginning books. And just to complete this long kind of answer, I, as you may know from looking at Dreamtimes and Thought Forms, I did it in concert with a political book called The Return of the Tower of Babel, which yeah. is unpublished. It's what I'm working on now. It's right on the borderline of what inner traditions might publish. I'm, I'm tweaking it a bit so it fits their list better. And I think they'll do it. It's, it's a totally different book about Trump and, and COVID and QAnon and Ukraine and chaos magic. And that's a thread in my work is to write pop, pop political or pop cultural stuff, which pokes a little bit into the other books. And then I have this trilogy of what I've been calling nonfiction novels, which is something I've had trouble figuring out how to publish. They're, they, they're written over an incredibly long period of time. The main one, which is unpublished, I began in in the late 1970s and was still and was working on it a week ago doing another pass and I've even debated whether I want to publish it because it's so personal about my life and so so direct it's called episodes in disguise of a marriage mm -hmm. and in some ways I think of it as the most major book I've done and I don't know what to do with it quite but it's uh, that's the that's kind of the overall palette in which I've been working. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot there. I do want to say that I had John Friedlander on as a guest several months ago and really thoroughly enjoyed speaking with him. And I know that I, I think more so in bottoming out the universe, he appears in both books, but I think in that bottoming out the universe, there was a little bit more of a focus on the Jane Roberts and the Seth material, if I remember correctly. And that was something I wanted to talk to you about, because I think that the Seth material does present a really interesting sort of, I don't know if I should call it a cosmology, but I'll just use that word right now for lack of a better term, that I, I, I can see sort of the influences and connections in what you're writing with that. But what I think before then, I wanted to ask about the title of Dream Times and Thought Forms <laughs> and ask you, what do you mean by both of those? What do you mean by dream times? It's kind of interesting. I want to say as an aside, the bottoming out the universe has more of John Friedlander in it because I was also working on his book, ah, okay. transcribing his book, Recentering Seth. Mm -hmm. while I was writing that, so they overlap. Yeah. I also smile a bit at the title because before I before I joined Inner Traditions, rather late in the, I mean, after having been a publisher for more than 50 years on my own, I knew that they had a reputation for putting their stamp on books. Mm -hmm. And we have a titles meeting for every every book that goes through there. There's a titles meeting often producing tension with the authors when 
the collective editorial and marketing people at Inner Traditions decide that the book needs a different title. Sometimes the authors love it and sometimes they hate it. And with Bottoming Out the Universe, before I was working there, they actually changed the title and I said, no, it can't be published under that title. And that was settled by them asking me to write a preface explaining what bottoming out the universe meant because they thought it was obscure. In the case of dream times and thought forms, I became, I think, the first person in inner traditions, legacy, history, to be present at the title discussion for his own book. And that was not the title of the book. I don't even remember what the title of the book was. It had many titles. I had one time a title about, I know, gateway cards, about reading gateway cards and it the title came out of they're very they very much look towards keywords what are your keywords and one of the questions it ultimately came up as we discussed it at the meeting the dream times and thought forms were very much keywords that i used in 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 my writing there it also caused this other debate <laughs> which was, they welcomed me very much. As I think you know, my own press was, I call it stolen by a bunch of people. And Inner Traditions invited me in completely generously and open-handedly, but they ultimately had to face the fact that I'm a literary writer and they're not a literary press. And as the acquisitions manager, John Graham put it, I'm a gnomic writer and they're a didactic press. Mm. So their goal with the title was to bring it more in line with a kind of didactic approach. So to the degree that your book is didactic, what are the most didactic notions in it? And by dream times, I'm certainly referencing the Australian Aborigine dream time, which is, I think, in their song lines, it's the singing of the landscape by collective ritual and mantra into being so that phenomena, geography comes into being along with consciousness and mythology and awakening awareness. But I'm sensitive to taking a translation of an Australian Aborigine concept and just applying it. So I go through some trouble to point out that there is an Australian Aborigine dream time with its own tele kind of telepathy tools that you might, you have to be a member of that culture to actually carry out. And then there is the kind of globalized dream time, the borrowing of the word um, by all cultures to describe a particular form of art or philosophy within that culture, which loosely corresponds to the Australian Aborigine dream time. So I'm and I'm also interested in it as somewhat of a, not a synonym, but somewhat parallel to astral projection, that which I write about in both books, that that a dream time is, is a projected reality, in a sense. It's projected out of consciousness and collectively projected. So that's what I mean by that. Thought form is a word that John... Freelander uses often. And I, I really dug into it in bottoming out the universe in, in kind of rederiving it myself. But to me, it's a great word for something that doesn't have another word. I remember, I forget his name, the author of The Kite Runner opening his novel by said, describing a character by saying, there's no word in what would it be Pashtun to describe them, but there is a word in English and the word was sociopath. <laughs> and likewise, I don't think that there's any other word in English that says what thought form does, mm -hmm. which is that the thoughts we have are active and substantial. And even when they're not put into action or translated into realities, they have an existence as thought forms and they go into the universe by way of our auras mm -hmm. and, and at higher vibrations than, than the world itself and they create realities. And 
as far back as the first year I was teaching college, which was 1970, and it was at the University of Maine in Portland, and I didn't have a language for it, I, I made the argument nonetheless, uh, partly I think to interest the students in, what, in the introductory anthropology they were bored with, that, that the Stone Age shamans created this civilization as a collective thought form. They projected it through time, and it took, I don't know, 20,000, 30,000 years for the thought form to take shape. But it was an unconscious thought form of theirs, and that likewise, we are projecting thought forms into an unknown future mm. that will look very, very different than this reality. And do these thought forms then, are they pulling us towards them in a way? I suppose, I suppose that they have, they have, they're, they're, they belong to us. So they have an attraction to us. They pull us toward them. Okay. Yeah. I was, I wanted to ask you about the, a little bit more about the meaning of the dream forms because, or the dream time, excuse me, because my understanding is that, and I, maybe I'm just kind of repeating what you just said. I just want to make sure I'm clear on it mm-hmm. is that we're all sort of dreaming this, what we call reality together. And it's not just humans, but it is all conscious beings are participating in creation of this reality. But then doesn't it also kind of sing back to us? In a yeah. Song? Yeah. Um, I mean, as as John likes to say, it's sort of the actual process is incomprehensible. You can't put it into words. But I said in bottoming out the universe, I made the point that if Stephen Hawking thought he was just getting a unified field theory of reality, he had no idea how complex the reality he was trying to describe was, because it's a reality that includes all the thought forms in it, too. And those are not just sort of surplus electricity from neurological existence. Those are actual entities with, with substance that, that help, help shape whole realities. So, yeah. Um, and it seems to me this is something else I wanted to talk to you about because it's something that I'm very interested in, maybe a little obsessed about, but you write in Dream Times and Thought Forms about UFOs. And these seem to be a kind of thought form that is maybe interjecting itself into our reality. And if I understand what you're saying is that they, that it's almost like this, numinous thing and that we're projecting our understanding of it onto it like right now we're thinking in terms of technology so we experience whatever this is as an advanced technology whereas people in the past may have experienced it as elves or the fae or something like that am am i on the right Track well, that's here. one of the things I'm saying, but that's also where I'm really simply kind of mouthing a mixture of Jung and Jacques Vallée. Right, right. Um, I, I've been watching the last week or so the documentary on Netflix. I guess Keith Thompson tells me it was on the History Channel before that. Keith is somebody I'm helping develop an inner traditions book on UFOs with. Mm. And the documentary is The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch, it's you know, in northern, yeah. in northern Utah. And what strikes me is that the scientists and other people who have gathered, i it's not that I dislike them or distrust their sincerity, but they're awfully swaggering around, like taking this position that they're open to alien consciousnesses and metaphysics, but they're also doing pure science. And while that's going on, I can't help but get the sense that something is just toying with them, playing with them, yeah. and that they're, they, 
as long as they're in an active form rather than a receptive form, they won't actually get to the bottom of it. They'll just be chased in circles. And that's mostly what I see. And I'm through, through like six and a half of the eight episodes. And they're obviously interesting. And there are lots of anomalies located in that one 500-acre locale, many of them disturbing. But I, I don't think it's just a matter of a projection or like you, what Jung called a psychoid, mm-hmm. like, like a, a transconscious entity. I think, I think it's also the fact that this, this reality we're in is it's vulnerable at its edges to its interface with other realities. And that somehow the overall UFO, skinwalker, like Sasquatch phenomenon works along that boundary and kind of squeezes, uh, it has entities that float right along the threshold. So some of it may be our projection, but I also think that there's something, something with its own autonomy right. that is operating. Well, they certainly, like UFOs, certainly appear on radars, <laughs> you know, so there seems to be something that's going on. And, but there is this weirdness about all of it. And I think that, you know, you, you, you mentioned, and I know others have mentioned this as well, but there's like a trickster element to all of this. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if this is, and this may be an impossible question, but what, what, if this is another dimension or another reality at the edges of ours, are they just messing with us to mess with us? Or is there something in a grander picture here? Are they trying to get our attention for some reason, trying to, maybe move us to another dream time that we've dreamt in the past. I'm curious what your thoughts it, are on this. Yeah, I think it could be any and all of those and that it's also kind of above our pay grade to figure yeah. out. Yeah. I I think that there probably are forms and motivations in the universe at large that we don't understand in our present form and in this embodied form. And that, and so we we kind of make up stories for them that would fit for us, but I'm not sure they fit for them. Right. It all comes off as very paradoxical and contradictory. All all the behavior, and where I it's I I one of the great things about doing inner traditions is I've been working with numerous authors who are along the sort of uh, boundary lines of so many topics. And with Keith, we talk, he and I talk often about this, and I've constantly been pushing him to take it as far as he can take it past all the other people, because he has that capacity to to ask bigger questions. You know, he did the earlier book, uh, I think it's called Angels and Aliens from the 1990s. Yeah, I have that. I have not read it yet, but I do have that book. Well, you could, the new one will be called Cosmos Calling, unless it gets changed in the titles meeting. But it seems that that's a good title and that they won't change it. But I have, lo- I have lots of other authors doing topics that any one of which put a different spin on this. Like I'm working with a young woman on a book on 12-stranded DNA who worked in in a pharmaceutical company before that with actual DNA, and now is working with developing sound healing and consciousness on a DNA vibration. And I've been working with some Australians who are doing a dragon oracle deck that's not about the usual visual dragons, but dragon energy that can shape dragons or can shape other things. And there's been such a variety of authors and topics. In fact, my most favorite recent one is a book by a Brazilian living in London, a call on the spiritual evolution of animals. I I can't remember quite what it got renamed, and I probably shouldn't say it because he hasn't been told yet, but it's a book about animal karma and reincarnation. And 
all of these things, and that's the interesting thing about inner traditions, it's a library of this whole liminal world. Mm -hmm. All of these things each put their own spin on it, book by book, view by view, author by author. And you could almost look at the UFO phenomenon through any number of other phenomena, which on the surface have little to do with it. Right. Because it's that kind of diffuse and 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 sort of ubiquitous and diffuse at the same time. Hmm. Yeah, it. I think that where my interest comes in. I mean, originally when I was a kid, it was just the fact of you know UFOs. But then as I got older and expanded in my thinking, I see this, and I'm going to take this back a moment to what I see you're kind of doing in your work, and I'm going to couch it in the, the, the language of paradigms, especially coming from Thomas Kuhn and his, you know, the structures of scientific paradigms and that we have, we, you know, science works that has this paradigm that answers things, but yet there's always an anomaly. There's always something that can't be answered. And it is the attempt to account for that anomaly that brings forth a new paradigm. Mm -hmm. And I've been saying for a long time now that consciousness is the anomaly. Because as you said at the very beginning, science can't explain it. You know, there's, it, 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 but it's there, it's present and it, is the immediate experience and if your physics can account for that you've got a problem i think it was i love this line in bottoming out the universe you wrote science has only one hole in it and the hole is us and that's how i was thinking and interpreting that statement but this i think with ufos and other strange phenomena i see that also as part of this anomaly that science for a long time has rejected but yet the evidence keeps piling up that something is happening yeah and it's not just it's it's not just ufos in in dream times and thought forms I was trying to really capture, I, I put UFOs in it, but I was trying to capture a wider swath of, of I don't know whether I'd say paranormal events, because I, I, was, I was really interested in, like as you can see in the book, ghosts, poltergeists, mm -hmm. messages from the afterworld, whatever those are, precognition, all these things make up a kind of a kind of complex of stuff that doesn't fit. And in, I think in bottoming out the universe, I made more of an effort to create kind of paradigms for it. And I, I fell back on something that John Friedlander uses a lot, which is this theosophical seven planes of consciousness. Because you, if you say, well, we only exist in the bottom three tiers, we only are our ordinary waking life. Our, our basic nervous system works at the lower part of the physical etheric plane, the astral plane, and the mental causal plane, that still leaves the majority, ha half of the first three planes, and all of the final four planes as beyond our operating range. Mm -hmm. So uh, you can assign it's a, whatever else it is, it's a convenient filing system to put certain phenomena places like you can put, you can put synchronicity in the buddhic realm, mm. which is above the causal realm. It's, it's not, it doesn't have to do with Buddhism. It's, it's, it's an overlapping name. And so I have a whole other author, Bernie Beitman, doing a book on coincidence that just came out. And, and I, but if you put it in the buddhic plane and don't work with it further, well, then you don't get to explore it in the physical plane. But I, I haven't been doing the seven planes for a while, but I was thinking how interesting it is that like the reality is created in one set of planes, like above the buddhic plane is the Atmic plane, 
where if I remember right, this reality is, is created, but it's not embodied at that, at that point. It needs, it needs the etheric plane to embody in this world. And then above the atmic plane is this monadic plane, which is beyond the creation of this reality. It's more like the creation of all realities in all multi-universes or multiverses. And for a long time, that was a good crutch to use that system. And I don't know why I don't, I mean, I, I know it, I sometimes fall back on it, but I don't use it so much anymore. I guess because it introduces a whole terminology and it begins to sound like um, these, you know, somebody's game to, to, to make categories of things. It becomes like any religion. And it, as you get older, you notice certain things about yourself that seem to either transcend explanation or just are. And one of the things about myself that I notice is that I tend to reject authority of all sorts. So in, a, in ways that I can't always explain. And during the years, I suppose mostly my 20s through maybe my 50s, when so many of my friends had gurus or teachings or practices, I tried so many of them and boy, did I leave quickly. Every single one I tried, I, I found I had no tolerance for it. And then, and then years later, I thought, oh, well, I don't have, I, I kind of fight systems in general. So as, as attractive as that system was, I guess I've kind of shed it in a way, but it's certainly in the books. Right. Even in dream times and thought forms, when I write about the dream, Australian Aborigine dream time, I relate it to astral and etheric realms. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I didn't see, and this is one of the reasons why I think I was struggling a little bit in terms of thinking of some questions for you because I would be very hesitant to say that you're presenting a paradigm or even necessarily a model of everything. It seemed to me that you're kind of playing with a lot of ideas. Yeah, I, again, I've thought about that because I get given a hard time about it at times, like, well, what are you saying or what's your point? God knows that was a disaster when I was a graduate student <laughs> because yeah. You couldn't get away with much then. I got kicked out of the graduate program in Michigan before I got admitted back in just because, and only into ecological anthropology because I got along with those people. I couldn't get along with the people who did myth and religion because they reduced it all to Marxism and statistics. To me, that's somewhat the literary tradition mm. that I really hold to the like, whether it's the English lake poets or the metaphysical poets, or it's like the novelists like Melville Faulkner or more contemporary novelists like Annie Prue, or Elena Ferranti, books that I've read with a lot of attention and, and love, or friends of mine who are novelists, Jonathan Latham, Paul Auster, friends I've talked to often. I, they don't offer any solutions, they tell stories. And in a sense, I feel that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to, I'm trying to tell valid stories about things that inspire you as reader to find paradigms and answers in yourself. I don't have, I don't have a point to make about things. There's some things I feel much more strongly about than others, but I'm, I'm like the person who sits at a debate and when one person speaks, I think, yeah, they're right. And then the next person speaks and I think, yeah, they're right. And yet I'm not a relativist. I have, I have strong feelings about things, but more and more the relativistic part of my mind asserts itself. And also I'm, I'm struck when I mentioned family constellations to begin with, it's very striking to me that I mean, two details of my life are unavoidable and their influence is unavoidable. One, the fact that my mother, brother, and sister all committed suicide in adult life. 
not when I was a child, but this, the energy of that was there and it was a very powerful energy. I, I, I can't even begin to describe how powerful that energy was, but in 2018, when Lindy and I went to Auschwitz, and I felt that uh, I felt that same energy at the camp braiding through, mm. and I realized what an intense energy that was in the family I grew up in. And the other thing is the question of who my father is. I was raised by my mother and stepfather with these with a half brother and half sister, and thought that they were my whole family until I was nine, when this other person got introduced as my father. And when I was 12, I changed his last name, which is the last name I have now. But when I was 30, my mother's suicide was first. And, and that's when she committed suicide. When I was 30, I was teaching at Goddard in Vermont then. I had two young kids. And it came out um, that people had not been willing to talk about it when she was alive, but it came out that she had had me by an affair and neither my stepfather nor my father was my father. And it took me a year and a half to find out who it was. And then he refused to meet me or even talk to me. And I tracked down members of his family in subsequent time, mostly four, four genetic half brothers, neither of whom I really could establish much of a connection with. So, I don't think that that explains, you know, one-to-one -one my lack of a conclusion, but I do think that the, that that kind of a presentation of family and world does create in one a sort of, a sort of withholding of judgment and withholding of meaning, and that you are in a way a product of, of, of what you do, you know, I think we both know Don Johnson, right? The guy at C, not the actor, but the guy at CIIS. Uh, no, I actually don't know Don. No. He, uh, he started the somatics program there. Okay. For years in San Francisco, I saw a therapist that he recommended um, to deal with family trauma. And he claims, and I think it's legitimate, even though I think it's a, a, a reduction of what I do, that... If you, if you have an insane mother like I did and an unknown father, you, you have to write about stars and embryos and consciousness in order to try and reclaim the lost parents. And you have to reach as far as you can. And he argued that's how much you wanted to reclaim the family you never had, that you extended it way out into the universe. And I don't think that that's like emotionally wrong but it also, you could do that with anyone and say, you know, I'm sure Vladimir Putin has issues he's resolving in Ukraine, but it doesn't really change the destruction there. Right, right. Well, I think we're all traumatized in one way or another. And I think that informs not only how we act individually, but also collectively. And it seems to me that to kind of think about these thought forms a little bit that we create these thought forms some collective thought forms that are grounded in our traumas mm -hmm. and and i and i'm curious would you say that the your writing would you say that this has been a manifestation of the thought form of your history well, and so, I mean, on some level it is, but it also must be like a, an, an offshoot of, in John Friedlander's terms, the soul and the group soul mm. that I belong to, because it goes beyond my personal history. But yeah, it, it is. And in the nonfiction novels, I, I do try and work with the material simultaneously. And years ago, Probably the the most public reading when I was mainly a literary writer who did readings was in the early 70s at Kent State, where I read with Robert Duncan and Allen Ginsberg on the first anniversary annual of the shootings. And I found it very hard. To, I mean, there were like, I don't know, 500, 1,000 people. I, I had done very few readings at that point. It was a bit overwhelming. And I remember kind of 
lamenting afterwards that I didn't much like my performance. And Ginsburg said, you never do. You, it's always a disappointment. And then Duncan said, what we're doing is we're creating the we're creating imaginary universes because they're the only place we can exist. Wow. Yeah. I like that. Well, I, I like the what you said previously too about the telling of stories. And it seems to me that that is where we're going to find our deeper truths is in looking at the stories because the stories tell us so much about who we are and where we are, why we are. And in some ways that seems a little bit more honest than the work of the philosophers who have attempted to, and even some of the scientists that have attempted to claim objective truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, at least on a feeling level, that seems true. One of my favorite John Freelander passages that I put in that book I took out of his workshops was when he talks about how he imagines there to be like this bar somewhere in the monadic plane where creatures from all different worlds and universes come together and like the bar in Star Wars. Mm. And, and they're like, there are those, there are those earth people again, telling their stories, mm. what stories they've got. And everyone gathers around and wants to hear the earth people's stories because they're such good storytellers. And yeah, I do feel I'm kind of a storyteller is that somewhat lodged in a kind of Jewish tradition I generally reject otherwise? Is that, I mean, somewhat, I mean, it's, I, I do relate to that on some level, but I, I also find too many of their stories end up in kind of nihilistic places or existential places that are less interesting to me than trying to make more imaginal stories and stories that go out into unknown worlds, but not science fiction per se, although science fiction can be an interesting part of it. Sure, sure. Well, and, you know, the philosophy, you know, I'm going to mention that because it's a lot of my background is also at times makes a move towards stories. And I think that originally there were stories in philosophy. We see this story in myth, especially in Plato, and then they deviated from all of that. And I think that the, the story is a way for us to maybe participate in this sort of mutual creation of everything. Yeah. Yeah, I always had, I read a lot of philosophy through the years, probably stopping, I don't know how many years ago, but mm -hmm. it struck me that I had the hardest time with that mm -hmm. because it's difficult for me to hold distinctions in my mind. At a certain point, I couldn't tell Kant from Hegel, from, you know, from Pierce, et cetera. I, it's sort of like, well, aren't they all saying the same thing? And clearly they weren't. So the problem was mine. I, I addressed that a little bit in uh, in bottom in bottoming me out the universe, because I spent a lot of time when I was in Berkeley with Terry Deacon, mm -hmm. who who's an anthropologist and biologist who writes deeply about nature. And he draws on original philosophical concepts that he takes from all the, from Aristotle, Aquinas, and so forth, and then blends them into Darwinism. And I was very, it was, relating to him was a good, it was a substantial intellectual agenda to have then. And he didn't even want to talk to me originally. He said, I don't talk to metaphysicians. But later, and I do write about his work in Bottoming Out the Universe, but later he had to admit that he got, had got a better hearing at graduate theological seminary than he did among his fellow anthropologists because of the deep philosophical roots mm -hmm. of his work. I know we're starting to get close to the end of our time, but I did want to ask you, and this is maybe, you know, and feel free to say you're not comfortable answering this question yet, but you mentioned that you're working on a sort of a political book, the Tower of Babel. And 
I was curious, how do thought forms play into that? Or do well, uh, yeah, well, they do. The, the seed of that book was when I was first working at Inner Traditions, and they asked me to help an author who was doing a book on the role of chaos magic in the election of Donald Trump. Mm. And I began to explore more the notion of the entire Trump cult as being much more connected to traditional magic than to politics as usual. And so, somebody like Gary Lockman, who writes about this extensively, can tie Trump through Steve Bannon and others directly to like Evola and, and other philosophers, Rene Guénon and so forth. So in, in the book, I'm, I'm, I do the same thing that I do elsewhere, but in a different context. For instance, I have a long chapter on QAnon in which I try not to trash it, even though I think a lot of it is, is like agitprop or paranoid nonsense, but it, it all has roots in something and it all, and it has energy. So I go into cargo cults, the history of cargo cults, and also the letter Q. The letter Q has a curious history and Robert Graves wrote about it in The White Goddess, in which he talks about the origin of Q in our alphabet. And I look for other angles. And invariably, this leads me to, to, thought, to thought forms and, and the, their role in, in creating these secular and political realities. I added... I added the chapter on Ukraine when I thought I was going to publish the book actually with a political, more political publisher who I was working with. But then I've since integrated it in because I feel that all the same confusions about who's doing what and where these things are coming from fits the same analysis, whether you're talking about Trump or the vaccine, the issues around vaccines, or QAnon, or the the whole the whole fuss about the January sixth. I'm interested in the kind of cult of January sixth as a version of Saturnalia. It kind of fits a lot of the mythology around that. So I'm even though I'm writing a political book, I'm moving in and out of that same issue. I, I find it refreshing to have such sort of graphic public forms that everyone's talking about to, right. to write about. It's, it's sort of a relief when I've been writing more abstract or personal stuff. Hmm. Well, it sounds fascinating. I'm really looking forward to reading it when it's published. And this idea of like the election of Trump and, and Trump in general and chaos magic. That's something I've thought about. And mm. I went down a lot of different sort of paths with a lot of this. And I believe that you worked with him as an author, a Paul Levy in his book. Yeah. Yeah. Eco. Yeah. Um, both at North Atlantic and at inner traditions. Yeah. And, and you'll see in the third volume on, Watiko is how Paul likes to pronounce it. He and I constructed a, an afterword mm. that we must have done 20 passes on together that's written in sort of in our joint voices because I it always bothered me from when I first published him, the very first book, that he didn't go more deeply into the Native American, the Algonquian mm. version of it. Right. And that there was... Not because I felt that he didn't have the right to appropriate it. I'm not on that side of that argument, but because I felt it was an unexplored richness that he didn't have, but he needed it in his own terms. So we had to jointly write it. Mm -hmm. But I guess what you're saying is that, that you could apply the Watiko model to the world today as like this vast cannibal pathology. Yeah. Yeah, the image that came to my mind quite a while ago was that there was this, it, for me, the image was a grub. That mm -hmm. was this massive grub 
that had attached itself to the planet. And it's this like pulsating grub that's just <laughs> feeding on us right now. Um, yeah. The the etymology of Wetika leads back to an owl. Oh, okay. Because it appears at night and and it feeds on it feeds on kind of it's a scavenger in a way. But um as it's as I, I found just by reading about it that it it has many different the term I mean I listed in in this joint piece maybe a dozen different versions of the word and it changes to different forms of ghosts hungry ghosts and things yeah. so I I at the end I felt that Paul had put his own spin on it much in the way that like the the rest of the world can put a spin on dream times Paul has put a spin on Watiko such that he's uh, he's claimed it in a different sense. It's it's not it's not just the cannibal disease that was among the Algonquin that was diagnosed among the Algonquin and Cree. It's uh, it's also that they foresaw a global condition. Mm. That's why I liked I've always liked doing the publishing, but in my life. The publishing replaced teaching college. Instead of working with students, I work with authors. And Ahud, the publisher of Inner Traditions, has teased me that that's what I'm still doing because I find so many young authors who are basically working on their first book. And I very much love kind of finding finding their threads and feeding something. And I certainly have been in an active, Paul's been an author, I've been in an active role with, and I've come to enjoy him a great deal. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we've mentioned inner traditions and several times, and I also just want to state that they're one of the main publishers that I work with for the podcast, and they've been absolutely delightful. And it was interesting to me when I first started working with them and this was you know mostly the publicity department how many inner tradition books i already had it is probably i would say pretty confidently of most of the books i have they're probably the main publisher of of books that i own you know i'm sure there are a few others but they've always been you know on my radar and i so appreciate everything they've done well i you know acquired on my own under North Atlantic books for 50 years. Mm. And I would say that the greatest success I did was niche publishing, bodywork, martial art, internal martial arts. I also published individual books like Richard Hoagland's Monuments of Mars or Richard Strozzi Heckler's In Search of the Warrior Spirit, a number of those that, that really stood out. But since working at Inner Traditions, I've been there only two and a half years, mm. and I brought in something in the range of 100 books mm. in that time. And it's such a more extensive library because of their, of their archive and library, and in a sense, kind of upping my own game as a publisher to be at their level. Plus, they simply have the resources to right. make that possible. I never felt I had the resources before to simply develop what I what I thought was worth developing because I didn't know if it could be marketed or sold. Mm -hmm. And they don't worry about that. They just assume they can if it's good, they can market right. and sell it. And even if it, they don't succeed, it's still worth the worth the effort. Mm -hmm. And the only limitation is that it is it is a psycho spiritual press, basically. It's, and it's about inner traditions, literally. And I like to do literary and political and anthropological stuff too. And I've pushed the margins there a bit. I'm, I'm very proud of Sophie Strand, who's my youngest author there and who is going to have a huge novel, another book, but also a huge novel next year that I think is, is unusual for inner traditions to have accepted. And I've pushed the boundaries in other areas, but there's just so far I can do that. Nonetheless, I mean, it's all I can handle bringing in the books that I have. Right, right. Well, I, I'm pretty sure I've got books that were published also by North Atlantic Books and Sophie Strand. I am 
on the list to get a review copy of her book. And I'm planning on reaching out to her as soon as that comes out. She was a presenter at a online symposium that I was involved with that was called Rebecoming the One. And I watched her presentation on that and it was just absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. She was a great discovery. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure, no doubt. Yeah, there was a, when I came into Inner Traditions, there was a very definite kind of noospheric effect. Yeah. It's like, where are all these people coming from suddenly? Yeah. It's like one of the first authors I got Laura Aversano said, well, you appeared in a tarot reading and then in steam from coffee grounds. Well, when you get <laughs> authors like that, you've, you, what do you, you got it made. Also, a couple of people just sent authors to be in great numbers. Jeff Kripal has sent mm -hmm. me lots of authors and Anthony Peake has sent me lots of authors. Of the 100, uh, of the roughly 100 books I brought in, I'd say 20 of them come from those two people just feeding me books. Right. Yeah, I really appreciate the work that Jeff Kripal is doing. And I think that fits into what you've been doing with your work as well. And, you know, I appreciate the fact that from a religious studies perspective, he's not really taking that Marxist approach, you know, oh, he's, no. he's saying, you know, look, there are all these other phenomena that need to be brought into this conversation in religious studies. And, and I'm so grateful to him for that. Yeah. And he's, he's, he's pushed, he's, he's pushed the boundaries while staying within an academic framework, right. which is hard to do. He's, you know, he's kind of kept his membership card in the academic guild. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to do, but good work if you can get it, I suppose. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, I know that we are out of time. So normally I ask what is coming up next for you. You've already answered that. You've got this book that you're working on, The Tower I've of Babel. I've got um, Return of the Tower of Babel. Yeah. And I've got Episodes in Disguise of a Marriage. Those are the two I'm working on. And I've rewritten my book, Out of Babylon, which is the book about the trauma in my family. Mm. And into four volumes. The, and I've re I've kept given them subtitles, see if I can remember them. The first one is called The Grimoire of Grossinger's, which is about that family and their resort hotel in part. The second one is called The James Brothers, which is about my brother who later committed suicide. And me, he always thought of us as Jesse and Frankie James. <laughs> it's a weird mythology. And the third volume is called Ja, just J-A-H, yeah, mm -hmm. because my brother became a sort of Rastafarian and then there were other references. And the third volume was called Universal Forces of Light, which is after a meditation that a psychic gave me to do as part of journeying through a long depression as a kind of, a kind of reaching out to an angelic protection realm. So I've tried to, I, I tried to cover all those territories and stories and exactly how I'm going to publish that. I, I don't know, but inner traditions and I agree that it's, they're probably not the best venue to do those books. And so I'm probably going to do everything else with them, but those, mm. and I'm going to figure those out separately. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I really thoroughly enjoyed both dream times and thought forms and bottoming out the universe. And it's led me to want to read more of your work. I really liked, I told you also before hitting record that there's a playfulness, I think, in the language that you use in dream times and thought forms. It took me a moment to, you know, a chapter or so to kind of settle into yeah. it, but I certainly appreciated it. Yeah, somebody in reviewing my early experimental prose said I had no sense of humor. And I took that. I said, no, that's not true. I think I was just being too serious then. But yeah. I, I do think dream times and thought forms has a lot of jokes in it. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. uh, even ones that surprised me. Well, I thought, wow, that's actually pretty funny. Right, right. And it's been released already, correct? I, I think technically the pub date is September 6th. But oh, okay, September 6th. It does 6th. seem okay. that people have it. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a review copy that Inner Tradition sent me early. So, and well, I couldn't remember. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if people can get it now, but 
these days with supply chains being as they are, the difference right. between getting something for real and getting it, you know, yeah. back ordered is is about the same. Right. Well, whenever it's available, I'll make sure to put links for it in the show notes and video descriptions on this. And you have a website, correct? Is that the best place for people to go to find out more about you? Yeah. And and on that, I recommend mostly either the news notes at the beginning or my guide to cinema where I've reviewed several hundred movies. Okay. And those are the two best things, I think, on that website. But it's just under my name. Okay. Richard.com. So, okay. Perfect. Perfect. I will put a link for that as well in the show notes and video description. So Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with yeah. me today. I feel like we only sort of touched the surface on a few things, but I also think we kind of went deep on some, but it was a great pleasure to speak with you. So I yeah, think- likewise. Yeah. I'm glad we did it. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Me too. All right. Well, thank you. Okay. Take care. Goodbye. And that's a wrap on episode 50 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you view this on Spotify. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help, especially if you listen on Apple. If you have a minute to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review. and please subscribe. Also, if you think a friend, family member, or coworker even might like this podcast, please share it with them. Right now, that is one of the best ways to help me with the podcast. I really would like to grow my audience. I also post videos of the podcast on YouTube, and you can find it at youtube.com slash rebelspiritradio. I also have a PayPal link set up if you would like to make a one-time donation, and hey, you can still be the first person to do so. You can find the link for that in the show notes or video description. I'm also going to be launching a Patreon within the next few months, so stay tuned for updates about that. I have big plans for Rebel Spirit beyond the podcast. I want to create more video content for the YouTube channel, and I'm planning some live stream episodes as well. The first will be with returning guest, Dr. Sharon Kogan, where she will offer a Jungian analysis and interpretation of dreams for participants. We're still working on scheduling this, but it will likely be near the end of October. So be sure to follow Rebel Spirit Radio on Facebook and or sign up for the newsletter at rebelspiritradio.com. That way you can be informed of all future live events and the launch of the Patreon. Implementing all of this is going to take a lot of time, work, and resources, so anything you can do to help will be greatly appreciated. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.